Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. It's Friday, September 5th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. So I've been thinking about a lot of the things that you know I've been thinking about. Russia's incursion into Ukraine, beating back ISIS, the so-called Muslim love jihad the Hindus are complaining about in India. This is where Muslims will marry the Hindu daughters, convert them to Islam. Okay, yeah, sure. I'm also fascinated by BP maybe having to pay $18 billion for spilling that oil in the Gulf. Then there's Venezuela's three-tiered monetary exchange system. Kind of crazy, but what I really, really have been thinking about is this. It's Taylor Swift's new song. People hate the talented, pretty Taylor Swift. She's so likable, you just can't like her. Plus, I think a lot of the people who don't like her have a pretty strong feeling that she stole their boyfriends. Taylor Swift Jihad. So even though I'm not an anti-Taylor railer, I don't think this song is any good. It's cliched. Like, it's cliched in its orchestration. I was thinking I've heard it before. Like, um, I don't know, maybe during a game of Jump Rope. It sounds like that Ting Ting song, which is probably a better song. Sounds like Patty Cake. Sounds like many a Gwen Stefani composition, heavily influenced by cheerleader culture. But it's not just how it sounds. It's what it's about. This song is every song. Every pop star starlets third fourth song is this theme right pink avril lavigne j-lo jenny on the block eminem has a bunch of them too it's not just women but it's all the same song it's saying i'm misunderstood you think i'm a big star but i hurt and my critics exaggerate rebecca black type who's just hoping for a pop contract i'm gonna now give you this song everyone could use it it's like a wiki commons version of what this song is i wrote it myself here's the song that everyone's singing I'm a misunderstood rebel. Don't believe all that you read. I'm a misunderstood rebel. Standing up to people who are mean. I'm a misunderstood rebel. Rebel, rebel. And like you, I am unique. I'm a misunderstood rebel. They want me to look pretty and not to speak. I'm a misunderstood rebel. That was where you put the drop. And I'm super authentic. I could prove it through hip-hop. 
They always say I'm acting out like I'm some baboon. Should I be a preacher or the creature from the Black Lagoon? I'm always saying things that are just so inopportune. What you think it doesn't hurt me? Think it doesn't wound? When the critics try to slay me with their word harpoon. So maybe I can't sing, but I can auto-tune. I'm a misunderstood rebel. That's it. That's free. That's for you. And that is one for all of rebel kind. On the show today, they instruct our kids and engender our condemnation. The embattled state of the American teacher. And in the spiel, it's an antan twig but first football the otherworldly fame the substantial fortune but the broken fingers and the scary finances Nate Jackson is a six-year vet. He played on the Denver Broncos. He played special teams, played some tight end. Here are his stats, or among his stats, are things like uh, in 2004, he had eight receptions for 73 yards. In 2008, he had 11 receptions for 84 yards. But the stats that are important to Nate Jackson, the person, not the, not the Nate Jackson, the football player, are things like these stats. Plantar fasciitis, both feet, Achilles tendonitis, Achilles tendonitis broken tibia, ankle sprains, torn MCL torn groin off the bone, torn right hamstring off the bone, surgically repaired shoulder, dislocated fingers, broken fingers, tons of lower back injuries, head injuries. That's the bad news. <laughs> Nate Jackson is here. How are you, Nate? I'm good. I'm really? Good. After all that, I feel that, a lot better. Yeah, I feel a lot better than all that. It's taken a little time. Now, the reason I wanted to have you in is this is a momentous week for you, for a former athlete and for someone who experienced all those injuries. Why don't you tell us what's going on? Well, my health care runs out this week. Yeah. The NFL provides, if you're a veteran, a vested veteran, meaning you have three and a half years of service, then you get five years of post-career health coverage taken care of by the league. And that five years runs out on August 30. Well, it's actually done. It's over. So I'm, uh, I'm now paying for my insurance. Wow. So that is, even if you're a George Blanda-esque 20-year vet, you get five years of health care. Yeah, and actually for those guys, um, the old-timers, they didn't even have any of that. Right, I, I shouldn't I use think. So like Peyton Manning. Yeah. Peyton Manning's rich, yeah. but you weren't. How right. much, by the way, what was your highest salary per year? Uh, my last year, I made six-something that year. Yeah. Uh, Did anyone tell you to save and put anything aside for health care? No. No, not at all. They, some people tell you to save your money, but um, not for healthcare. We didn't think about healthcare because we're smashing into each other at high speeds every day. You have to kind of put aside rational thought and throw your instinct aside to be able to steer into collisions on a daily basis. The human body usually tries to avoid collisions, avoid hits. And in football, you train your brain to do the opposite. So there is no tomorrow. It's not as if the injuries are just an unlucky consequence of football. They're an inevitable consequence of football. Yeah, they're inevitable. And because we're always pushing ourselves to run harder, faster, lift more weight, eat more. You know, you're pushing your body to the limits every single play, every day, every year. For me, the injuries would happen not at the beginning of camp, not even in training camp. I would make it through all many camps and training healthy. I never missed practice and it would just, my body would start to wear down and then something would snap. And it was just the wear and tear and, and the torque and all that. Up until 
August 31st, so up until a couple of days ago. What was your health care status? Was everything paid for? Did you get full coverage? Yeah, great coverage. Everything paid for, yeah. And then what happens? What and then it goes away on until September 1st. Well, I, I pay for it on my own. So shifting over to Cobra and can do that for 18 months. There is a fund that's created, a health reimbursement, I think, uh, fund where each year you play logs 25 grand into the account. So I played for six years, so I have 150 grand in a health reimbursement account, and that certainly helps a lot. But um, a lot of these dudes, you know, that only played for a couple years and had some really bad injuries, you know, a lot of times that five years after you leave the NFL, that's kind of spent hiding out by yourself trying to figure out what life is outside of the game. And we're all used to dealing with pain. We're all used to dealing with the injuries. So we don't tell anybody about it. We limp around. We hobble around. Everything's all right. It's not till 5, 10, 15 years down the line that these things start to pop up and become unlivable. So far, we've been talking about your bones. What about your brain? You got to Tell me what, how that is physically manifested, and you know, you also must worry about it a lot. I think the worry is actually the most poignant result of this whole talk because I'm five years out of the game. I don't have any cognitive symptoms really that I can pinpoint. I have my moody days. I get a little bit depressed more so than I used to, but maybe that's a product of being a writer and confronting my emotions on a daily basis and looking at them. You know, mm-hmm. um, that said. It's a logical assertion that pounding your head against something over and over is going to damage your head. Um, Tell me about your journey trying to get, what was it, workman's compensation in California? Yeah, so um, I'm from California. I went to college there. Uh, My agent lives there, and we played the the Raiders and the Chargers every year. It was kind of widely known that that California offered the best payout for workers' comp for players. And so... A lot of us caught wind of that and filed workers' comp in California. To get that payout, you had to have a legitimate claim for having connections or ties there. And the NFL owners were leery of this. They're the ones who are making the payouts, them and their insurance companies. And so I went through all the doctor's exams. I went through all the x-rays, all the MRIs, psych tests, you name it. I went through all kinds of stuff. And just as they were going to make a decision on my case, the NFL owners pushed through a bill through the California legislature that barred former NFL players from filing in California unless they had 80% of their work days taking place in California. Right, so basically only Chargers and Raiders players. Right, and Niners, yeah. And And so... uh, So all uh, the other players like you who you're documenting, you're from California, your your, your agent was there, you would play the Chargers and you would play the Raiders twice a year. So I bet you of those 80 injuries I listed, a couple of them happened in California. Yeah, they did. And certainly some guys were trying to game the system a little bit, had no ties there and we're just mm-hmm. you know filing there it's called venue shopping that happens right exactly but about four thousand pending cases were thrown out because this bill was pushed through pretty hastily and it's, it seems like there was some corruption involved with it but yeah now you got four thousand dudes who probably have their health care running out or are about to run out and have a long list of injuries that need to be taken care of and, and a lot of them don't have the money to pay for it ah the glamorous nfl life <laughs> it's not all bad but you know we like to talk about the bad stuff <laughs> Nate Jackson is the author of Slow Getting Up, a story of NFL survival from the bottom of the pile, newly out in paperback with a new chapter on a lot of the stuff we were talking about. Thanks for coming in, Nate. Thank you. I appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST at checkout. Squarespace is simple and easy. It's beautiful as far as design goes. 
Now let's talk about drag and drop content. These aren't synonyms. Let me think of something that you could drag but not drop. How about premium cable? It's a drag to pay that bill, but you just feel like you can't drop it. Now let's work the other way. What's something you could drop but you don't want to drag? Your boyfriend, right? That guy's not really pulling his weight, but nor can you. Squarespace has 24-7 support through live chat and email. They're located in NYC Dublin and Portland. Plans start at $8 a month. They include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. When you start a trial, you don't need a credit card. You just need to start building your website today. So how it works is go to Squarespace, use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. That means you're showing support for the GIST. Squarespace is showing support for the GIST. So we want to thank them for that. I also want to say Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. If Dana Goldstein's new book had a bumper sticker instead of a blurb, it would be, if you could read this, blame a teacher. We as Americans do believe the children of the future, and ever since that distant past, we've been anguishing over those directly charged with crafting the future. Teachers, they're in it for the money. They don't have to show results. Hell, I'd like a job guaranteed for life. And if I couldn't be fired, I'd slack off too. And perhaps more subtly, one of those complaints goes something like this. I really hated Miss Callahan in fourth grade. The Teacher Wars, a history of America's most embattled profession is the book. Dana Goldstein has been covering teachers for years in places like Slate, but now in this new book. Hello, Dana. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Absolutely. So certainly, unlike other institutions that we think need reform, like if you take the post office or the roads or public housing, I don't think that people would pine for a glory day of the post office. But I think they do with teachers. I think they look back and they imagine a time when it was the case that teachers were better. So let's break that down. Do you think that people look back and say teaching as a profession used to be much better? Yes, people say that all the time, but I would complicate that quite a bit. I mean, you hear about the 1930s and 40s a lot as this golden age of American education. The point I always make about that is that two things were going on then. First, the Depression happened, and men and overeducated people who were probably overly qualified to be teaching K-12, they streamed into the profession, including Jewish people and African-American people who were experiencing a lot of discrimination in academia, medicine, law. They couldn't do those jobs to the extent that they wanted to. So uh, we don't want to go back to that. Uh, The second thing that was happening then is that only 10% of kids were going to college, Today, we have the idea of college for all, college prep for everybody. So the expectations on kids were a lot lower, and therefore teachers looked like they were excelling. You know, a lot of the kids were getting put into vocational track curricula. We didn't have this expectation then that there wouldn't be achievement gaps. Achievement gaps were sort of thought to be the natural way of the world back then. Any other reasons to think that teaching was better? Well, a lot of people talk about feminism in this context. So they say, look, second wave feminism happened, and all of a sudden, smart women could be anything. They could be doctors, they could be attorneys, and they all left the teaching profession. That's something I looked at pretty closely in the book. I was really fascinated with the fact that it's a 76% female profession. What does that mean for our cultural perception of the job? Mm -hmm. What I found is that it's hard to find an identifiable drop-off in the quality of teachers between before and after feminism. So it looks consistently before and after that about 10% of teachers come from elite colleges. It doesn't look like that changes. Um, However, I did a lot of oral histories for this book. The women I interviewed who entered the profession in the 50s and early 60s before feminism, they often described that they kind of wanted to do something else that they couldn't actually do. And these were women who had like Supreme Court clerk type of ambition, some of them. 
I write about them because they started reform programs at the time, like the National Teacher Corps and stuff like that. So anecdotally, you do see some of this. If there was a way to empirically try to make the case that teaching was better, it would be from cross-national comparisons. But the point there is that the whole rest of the world is getting much wealthier, much richer. I mean, it would be ridiculous to compare the American education system with the Japanese post-World War II. They were a society decimated by the war. So, yeah, as the whole rest of the world rises, America is going to look, in comparison, worse than Estonia, Korea. Japan. Well, we're actually we just about average. Yeah. So we hear a lot like we're we so much better. worse. We used to be yeah, better. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you brought up Japan and World War II because these other systems that we compare ourselves to, Japan, South Korea, Finland are three that I'll mention. They all reformed their systems after World War II because they experienced like national trauma <laughs> and they were kind of starting over. Right. So there's a lot more contemporary thinking that has gone into those systems. We are living with the consistent legacy of a system that is circa 1830 that has the one-room schoolhouse as its model. And some of the core assumptions have not been reexamined, such as the assumption that it's one teacher working alone, very autonomous, very little sharing of practices between adults. Are there practices that they all share that we don't that maybe we could get a good idea from? Well, one of the ideas I like is that in Singapore, you sort of get to choose a path as a teacher where you can keep teaching, but you get leadership roles. So, for example, you can write a textbook and study how to write the curriculum. You can advise politicians on policymaking. You can mentor other teachers. And for all these things, you're recognized in the adult world. Yeah. But you're still teaching kids for part of the day. That's great. I mean, teachers are people, too. Yeah. In addition to being recognized by their students and their students' parents for the great work they do, they want to be involved, a lot of them, in a bigger, larger conversation about what's going on in the world. And when you talk to teachers who've excelled out in their 20s and have left the classroom, they often express this hunger just to be out there with adults a little bit more. Yeah. It's a profession. I wouldn't say that most teachers would disagree that it's a calling. Once you start defining it in almost religious terms as like, a, you know, a calling or a, 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 an example of charity to be given, you know, you're not going to get the best results necessarily. Yeah. And this is a story I tell in chapter one of the book. Uh, I talk about a woman named Catherine Beecher. She comes from this strong, socially connected abolitionist family. She is Harriet Beecher Stowe's sister. And she is one of the first people to go around the country lecturing, talking about this idea of teaching as a romantic calling, a philanthropic vocation, more than one that you do for recognition or money or the, all the other reasons people do jobs. And so deep in our history in the United States, you see this idea that teachers are almost like missionaries and yeah. less like professionals. And we see it today, even with sometimes how Teach for America is discussed. I do think this is somewhat at cross purposes with professionalizing teaching. So your dad was a teacher. Yeah. Your grandfather was a teacher. Mm -hmm. My dad was a teacher. My dad used to always say to me, one of the annoying things, by the way, uh, if he's listening, I would audit his classes in sixth grade uh, all the time. Just about the best and most dynamic teacher I ever saw. A lot of fun. He'd take the kids into the hallway in a Roman phalanx, and there was a lot of stuff that he would do out of the classroom. Just unbelievably engaging. And my dad would always say one of the annoying things about being a teacher is that everyone else thinks you could do it. Yeah, and I try to take that idea apart, especially in Chapter 10 of the book. I go around to schools where really great teachers are trying innovative things, and I show that it's not magical or instinctual. It's it's not something they were born knowing how to do. 
it's a real skill. You know, the best way to teach this to other teachers is not to go out saying, oh, we're only going to recruit kids that have 4.0 GPAs. That's not realistic when we need 3.4 million teachers in America. It's to take a look at what these expert practitioners like your dad, like the people I observed as a reporter, are doing and get them teaching other teachers how to be good. What are some great pedagogical ideas that are out there that need to be more widespread? Well, I went to Newark, New Jersey, where, of course, the public schools are supposed to be the worst in the country. And um, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook was supposed to have saved it with his $100 million. Um, But what I found when I went is that there were some wonderful things that had been going on there for years before the Zuckerberg donation. And one of them was this incredible early childhood literacy program that was really focused on a rigorous and rich and activity-based literacy curriculum for kids from kindergarten through third grade. This is so crucial. Reading is the foundation for every other learning you will ever do in your life, not just in school. Vocabulary and the sciences and social studies, word problems and math, understanding a medical consent form when you grow up. Um, reading is crucial to all this. Kids that end the third grade behind in reading are disproportionately likely to drop out of high school. So what I do is I watch this wonderful teacher who's using a set of research-backed practices to teach reading to kids who speak Spanish at home. She's doing a wonderful job. And I'm thinking to myself, how come none of the Zuckerberg donation went to scale up this work? Mm -hmm. It was happening in 14 Newark schools, but they never got the funding to expand it to all the schools in the district. That's the kind of thing you see over and over again when something's working, that it's happening on a really small scale and we don't kind of blow it up system wide. Dana Goldstein is a writer, a reporter, the descendant of teachers and is now author of The Teacher Wars a history of America's most embattled profession. Dana, thank you. Thank you. And now the spiel. Ah, the Antan Twig. It is the period of time that we call three weeks, but that many varieties of dwellers on the English Isles would have referred to by this more mellifluous name, Antan Twig, would have. If they had thought of it, it was right there, right there for them to coin. They never did, so we did it. It's like the word selfie, or frenemy, or turn down for what. But we've researched the ancient texts, we live by the ancient ways, and we have established an Antan Twig. Every three weeks, oh no, not monthly, what do I look like, your accountant? Every three weeks, we correct our digressions and dissections, and we make some special suggestions. So, what I get wrong this time? Nothing, actually quite a bit. Andre Ellington doesn't play running back for the Falcons, his bird is the Cardinals. Actually, didn't ruin the joke, but I did ruin the fact, and I had to flip over that sign that says... It's been four days since our last misstatement. Also screwing with that sign, my assertion that Debbie Stabenow was governor of Michigan. No, that didn't happen. And then there was what I said about the mantis shrimp. A lot of people caught this. The awesome, awesome mantis shrimp. I described their process of stunning prey by stirring up the waters around them as super captivation. And while I do find this super duper captivating, the process is actually called super cavitation. And just today... 
On the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission Facebook page, there is a picture of a giant mantis shrimp. They think it's a mantis shrimp. Someone is holding a fishing rod next to it, and the thing's bigger than the fishing rod. It's enormous. It is hard to judge exactly how big it is without someone holding a ruler next to it or a penny, which is usually useful, or an exactly 12-inch long measure fish. Do you know about the measure fish? It's related to the meter fish, the meter fish indigenous to the coastal waters of Europe, Canada, and members of the Carter administration. The 12-inch measure fish has an unusual mating pattern. Males will approach each other, eyeing each other warily. Then they will flare up to full length. The other will flare up also, and they will stretch themselves to achieve a full extension, and they will measure which one is longer, because that one will have the right to mate with the female. But since all 12-inch measure fish are exactly 12 inches, neither will be longer, and the two males will become depressed, and they will turn sad, and they will turn lethargic, and they will turn into shells of their former selves. But not literally shells, because shells are slightly larger because they have to surround an object. They will they will stay 12-inch measure fish, exactly always 12-inch measure fish. As a result, the 12-inch measure fish population is being depleted. They're uh, slowly dying out. They're being taken over by the meter fish because in addition to being physically larger, as a European species, the meter fish have an easier time handling a tie or a draw. I also want to address the many comments I got, my advice to fantasy football players. And the advice is to enjoy fantasy football as you would enjoy a bowl of ramen noodles with as little noise and talking about it as possible. It was a polarizing topic. I was accused of calling fantasy football players dumb. No, just boring. I was accused of speaking truth to power running back Trent Richardson, who I drafted in the sixth round. Let me tell you who was still on the board. Well, you had T.Y. Hill. No, no, see? See how you hated those last six seconds? See how you loathe them? That's why I won't subject you to them. What I'm saying is that going on waivers and picking up Geno Smith should be like going to a nightclub and picking up a non-Alec Baldwin brother. You can do it. I won't judge you. Just don't tell me about it. But within that segment, I also made an analogy. I said that men should observe the cone of silence around fantasy football like young women should observe a cone of silence about owning multiple cats. And as when the wind-up mouse goes under the bed, this drove some listeners crazy. So let me extend a pro-cat story. Check this out. The biggest bank in Russia will loan you a cat Unlike some other animal portions of this Antan twig, this is true. The biggest bank in Russia will loan you a cat if you take out a mortgage. In Russia, cats are considered good luck. Let me read from the description of The Guardian. The bad news is that the seemingly perfect present is not available to keep forever. The clause in the bank's contract states that each cat will only be on loan for two hours, long enough for the chosen feline to enter the property and have its picture taken with the owner. That's pretty good. Well played, Guardian. But what you didn't mention was that as much as customers think they got to take advantage of the program, there are a whole ball of strings attached. Look carefully, lest you be left pussyfooting the bill. There's a restocking charge and an administration fee line. That is the right reaction, Andrea, who is shaking her head. So all this talk of fish and cats got me thinking to another sea creature, a star of the sea, a lobster. The lobster of the Antan Twig, the gist listener who best comports with the ideals, aims, and ambitions of Slate, the gist, and the Minnesota Future Farmers of America Duluth chapter. The bronze lobster goes to Mark Wagner, who on Twitter wrote, Mike, I note you say, I'm well, thanks to gist guests. This guy, links to some wordy guy, says I'm wrong. Your thoughts? 
When someone says, how are you? You should say, I'm well. I guess you could say I'm good. But what you don't know is we usually edit this down. So my full answer will go something like this. How are you doing, Mike? I'm well. Well, not so good. I just got a giant mantis shrimp caught in my undergarments and I'm experiencing super cavitation. The runner-up lobster came from, I think it was Matthew B., but it could have been someone else who went to uh, facebook.com slash slate gist. It was a Facebook suggestion where I was talking about how odd it was that the British terrorism alert used the phrase severe and above the phrase severe was critical. And a few people were saying, well, actually, you know, that is the distinction. Think about a nuclear reactor. If something is severe, it means one thing. If something is critical, it means something else. To which I said, oh yeah, think about a restaurant review. How was the review? Severe? Or how was the review? Critical. So it means different things. So my point stands. Until my mind was blown by the California drought alert system. Listen to the levels of California drought alert. The lowest level of drought alert, abnormally dry. D1 is moderate drought. D2 is severe drought. D3 is extreme drought. Where do you go from there? The answer, D4, exceptional drought. After moderate, I think they were just randomly choosing vocabulary words, and they left desiccated on the table. Also, profoundly unmoist. But the main lobster, the listener who gave me fodder for a million-dollar idea was Jason Locke, who tweets at, at Jay, of course. He said, Mike, hilarious rant on fantasy football on Slate Gist. Well done, sir. Next up, CrossFit. And he is right. CrossFit is great for you to do and annoying for you to tell me about. And Tough mutter and that Warrior Dash and a little bit of an aside, bungee jumping. I mean, would anyone bungee jump if the deal was you could, you could do it, but you could never tell anyone about it? No, no one would bungee jump. And so here's my million-dollar idea. It's a service that goes out, mostly a photography service, could be video, chronicles you, will smear you in mud, will mess up your hair, will give you a T-shirt that says, you know, Tough mutter. will write on your arm in grease pencil and a low number to show that you are decently seated. And we'll take the best goddamn pictures of you ever. And the best thing is, and why this is a million dollar idea, there is absolutely no race involved. You get the grease pencil, you get sweaty, you put it all over social media, you're the man. And you, for this Antan Twig, Jason Locke, you are the man, or to be fair, the lobster. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is producer of The Gist. Her drought level is feh, but her heat index is meh. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, will loan you a horse to swallow the goat that he leased to chase the dog that he temporarily gifted for tax purposes to eat the cat that a Russian bank gave you to catch the spider that wriggled and jiggled and become a Slate insider. Sign up for Slate Plus. Email David Plotz. That's david.plotz at slate.com for the best deal, like an ad-free podcast. You can listen to us on SoundCloud or go to iTunes. Also, we're on Yo!, Get the app, subscribe to podcast in the app, and then as soon as the show is up, we'll yo you. Go to slate.com slash gist email to sign up for our email, which does a similar thing to the yo service, just with more words. Go to facebook.com slash slate gist. See a giant Florida shrimp picture. Engage in a heated debate about the phylum thereof. Our Twitter feed is Slate Gist. Our email is thegist at slate.com. You're not just a gist listener, you are a part of Super Captivation Nation. Expialidocious. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.